Hello, you're listening to Insurance Covered, the podcast that covers anything and everything to do with insurance. Coming up in this episode. I'd say it's, it's mainly evolution, but it's verging on revolution. And the reason is I think that the pace of change in insurance is so fast and there are so many things happening at the same time. My name is Peter Mansfield. I'm a partner of the law firm RPC. And in each episode, I'm joined by a guest and we discuss an aspect of the wonderful world of insurance. And this week we have Ben Bolton and we will be discussing the latest research on what makes a great underwriter. Uh, Ben has been involved in market research throughout his professional career. Uh, Initially, this was within the insurance industry at Lombard and then at AXA PPP Healthcare. However, in 1993, he moved into private practice and in 2001, he founded and became managing director of Grace Church Consulting, which conducts market research into the insurance sector. So, Ben, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Peter. Way back when, you did a, a degree in politics, and was that were you ever tempted to follow a more political route? Um, that certainly was way back when. Um, I wasn't actually. No, I don't think I'd ever envisaged I'd have a, a political career. To be honest, I didn't really know what I wanted to do um, after university, and I. I suppose I sort of drifted a bit into research, but I'd really always liked the idea of, you know, doing research and knowing a bit more than than everyone else, I suppose, is my little play that I've always been interested in. And uh, what was it that eventually drew you into insurance's orbit? Well, what I started off doing in research was doing a lot of work in the sort of mid-80s and late-80s for basically London-based institutional finance, so the investment banking world, stockbroking world. And I saw really the transition at that stage from what was a very traditional world of finance into one that was, you know, basically taken over by the Americans and then technologized through big bang. So I'd always been involved with the, if you like, the higher end of finance and, and particularly the London market. And when we set up Grace Church, the brief story is that Lloyd's actually approached me um, someone who people will know, Caroline Wagstaff, you know, runs a PR firm called Luther Pendragon, and she was comms director there. And we we both spoke about doing a syndicated survey because I was doing a little bit of work for Lloyd's and I had done a lot of work for Lloyd's on their brand. And the question really was for Lloyd's was what is happening with the managing um, agents' brands in relation to Lloyd's? We'd like to understand more about that. So my introduction really, although I'd been slightly involved, was to some of the original entrepreneurs and now kind of stars, really. So the Stephen Catlins, Charlie Phillips, Nick Furlong and Andrew Beasley, all those people were on the original list of our clients for the original broking survey, which we started in about 2000. And that was really the first introduction. So I, I think, you know, I've been incredibly lucky, really, to have watched their progress, you know, and how the market has progressed. Some of them still around, of course. And, and doing all right. Yes, that is. I've not done quite as well as them, sadly, but um, <laughs> I, I'm um, in no way envious of their success. I, I think they've, they've, they've done brilliant. And the fact they're still starting up businesses is just testament to their real drive and what they really are all about. Exactly. And, and that's something which we're going to be coming back to a little bit later on when we talk about what makes a great underwriter um, and, and some particular research you've done around that. But before we go on to that, I was just wondering whether you could quickly summarise what particular trends are you seeing in insurance at the moment? Yeah, sure. There are five trends. There's always five, uh, sometimes six, but we'll go for five today. So the, I think the most important one that we've been monitoring over the last few years is consolidation. You can read it in the press. Certainly it's 
there's going to be you know more of it next year there's mergers and so on but what we're seeing in the data is a big big shift and and this and this has huge implications when an industry starts to consolidate and what it does effectively it ratchets up the competition basically and while it is about the numbers and it's about scale so over the past 5 years we've seen more and more business being placed with the large insurers so basically brokers are shifting business to those larger insurers it's not to say it's all going there but since 2014 about 20% more of the total in the london market is going to those top 15 and we see that increasing year on year that trend carries on so that is hugely important and will drive almost everything you know in in the next few years the second thing i think is and we'll come back to this is talent and the value chain so so really when i talk about the value chain it's about all of the organizations and people who deliver effectively the service or the product to the customer all those links in the chain i think that is going to change i think it's rather mechanistically often described as the distribution network in insurance you know they don't want to go emotional on anything but i think it is about value and i think what we're looking at there is is the changing dynamic i think around the customer focus so pre covid and through covid i think it's quite notable how many brokers are saying we're no longer here to feed the underwriter we're here to service the customer you know that's that's their very clear view of the world so we've got number 1 consolidation number 2 talent what's number 3 so i think the third one which is linked into all of that really is basically reputation and service so i think these two things often go hand in hand in these kind of b2b environments this is more fundamentally about the insurance offering. I think pre-covid this was happening anyway. We were moving as I say towards a more customer focus and that's certainly accelerating now as we go through covid. I think it's very fair to say that the BI publicity uh, or the publicity around BI and the questions in in the public around the reputation and the trust that you have in insurance it never was that high but I suspect it's going to be lower now on any trust index that you look at. I spoke to the lawyer on a panel the other week who who was acting on some of these cases and he said for the first time in his career of 30 years people at dinner parties knew what he was talking about and I don't even know why he was going to dinner parties either in the current environment anyway <laughs> but you know I think that that has brought it to the public's attention so I, and I think the reason I'm saying this is because it it will bring that into the boardroom and it will be a consideration so it all feels a bit negative but actually what I think it will do is is creates and it is creating when we speak to executives senior people it's creating what they'll see as an opportunity for we could be the ones who are the most trusted because if you're at a low point the only way is up so that one is uh, reputation and service number 4 yeah so for the t word technology uh, this is um god this is the one that everybody's talked about incessantly through pre covid and then covid really wow that's gone off the scale in terms of both um some realistic stuff and i think a lot of hyperbole as well i have to say but technology is key so i think um where i would say this is going to be uh, important first of all it will have a significant impact and it and it absolutely has to i mean it's you know it's fairly obvious now and we've got blueprint 2 from lloyds has just come out so there's there's pushes in all sorts of different directions and and we all know the cost base is too high too many well paid people i think doing what are still in effect administrative jobs that will change so where will the main impact be for me it's going to be on trading systems i think trading technology lloyds has really given us a big push now i think with blueprint 2 
or will, because they've effectively said, we'll stand aside from doing that trading technology and we'll leave it up to competition. So there are two players now in that space, PPL, which is a Lloyd's invested credited system, which has hugely increased its turnover, both through mandate and also through COVID. It pretty much saved the market through COVID, I think. And the other is, at the moment, the only other accredited one is white space. But there will be more. And I think there will be, therefore, to me, something that is good for markets and healthy is real competition around both the quality of the technology and the deployment of that technology. In other words, the user experience will define who are the winners. And the fifth and final trend that you're seeing? And the fifth and final one, quite briefly, really, is segmentation and specialization. I think this is basically about what type of organization you are and and really what utility you have. And I think organizations are having to think about this much more now with consolidation. There's no place in the middle now for anybody. A middle business that just is a pale imitation of a global or a specialist is just not going to work. And they're all getting squeezed out. And I think they will just pretty much all go. So you can't be all things to all men. And as I said earlier, just about say, you know, if you just take the legal sector, which you're in, you know, I think firms, they're all law firms, but I, you know, DAC, they're all sort of doing the same things, but they're different, you know, and their position different. And I think that's the same in insurance, it's no different, uh, or any other sector. So what we basically have is large global insurers, which we can see happening before our eyes and large brokers, but we're also getting specialists emerging. So I think there's a, there's a new breed, I think, of specialists. And perhaps the best example, certainly the most pr at the moment is McGill, you know, which is this Steve McGill's business, which is specialist, but it's also very much built around specialist talent and the people. Yeah. Okay. So, so the, the, the five trends are consolidation, talent, service, technology, and segmentation. And actually, all of those feed into what makes a good underwriter and what makes a great underwriter. What is going to be the, the underwriter of the future? How they're going to stand apart from the herd, as it were. And, and actually, a lot of those themes that you're talking about, we're actually going to come back to now that we're talking specifically about, about underwriters and the development of that talent. So this is all based on, on research and a report that you've recently done for Lloyd's, isn't it? So could you talk us through how that has come about? Yeah. So several years ago, we started a leading underwriters survey. And it basically is a survey of brokers and underwriters, so underwriters on their own peers, about who they see as the most respected or lead underwriter. That was a really popular piece of work. And when I say popular, everybody asks us about it and when's it coming out and who's going to be on the list and all that. So it's because it's about people, you know, it's one of those that gets a lot of attention. But behind that survey, and it, and it is a serious survey, was a lot of data that we collected about why people were chosen. And so we'd been collecting that for a number of years. And one of the people who had been a buyer of that and a user of that was John Hancock, who became head of the franchise operation at Lloyd's, as many of us will know. He's now AIG. But when John joined, he and their analytics team at Lloyd's got in touch with us and said, would you be interested, Grace Church, in bringing together in a sort of data collaboration project your survey data and our profitability data? And we characterized it as a data connectivity project. And the reason we did that was because there are real genuine issues, obviously, about us just getting, we can't just go in and look at all Lloyd's profitability data because that's highly confidential. So what we had to do was to set this project up such that we could share those data with Lloyd's, not just 
the legal stuff, but also we could share it without just getting into us seeing their side of it and get the right conclusions out and do the analysis. So over a period of about 18 months, we set out to define this this idea, whether we could define the behaviours and the characteristics of these successful underwriters. So, so leading underwriters were defined effectively as people who had made consistent profits above the market average for a number of years. Is that right? Yeah. So that, that and that was an interesting one, because I think what we'd always had was on our list, you know, on our survey was people would say, well, there's Joe Bloggs, great underwriter. And I'd meet the head of underwriting, the chief and the exec. And they say, well, you know, he or she, they're very nice very nice chap or person, but actually they don't make me any money at all, you know, and um, that wasn't true of all of them. And I said, I'm not measuring profitability, but I am measuring how well regarded they are out in the market. So I think that the issue then was always left a little bit open. So this idea of could we link it into profit in some way, it was a good hard metric, as I, I described earlier on, that we could look at. So that was the idea was really to say, on that measure of profitability, could we find correlations in the data? Now, there are other measures of success, I think it's, it's worth saying. I mean, you know, not everything is down to the pure profit of that underwriter, although that is pretty, clearly pretty important. Fairly crucial, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they contribute in other ways is what I'm saying. So, yeah, so that's it. Okay, so that's the million dollar question. What is it that the leading underwriters do that the rest aren't so good at? Well... There's two sides to this story. One is the pure financial side. And so Lloyd's analysis, without touching our survey, was that the more proactive underwriters, those who refreshed their portfolios, moved things around, changed things up, were the more successful. So in other words, a proactive approach on the financial side, broadly speaking, correlated very well with profitability. Those that didn't, who were kind of quite quite static, I suppose, in the way they approached their portfolio, were, were much less successful. And the second side was our side, which we came to the conclusion, which where we brought the data together, was that there were certain characteristics. In other words, we I think what we really did was we started to describe why certain people were proactive and why they weren't, perhaps. And we built it around this concept which is not new. It's from someone called Carol Dweck, who wrote a book, which actually Microsoft used as a basis for their transformation around the idea of mindset and two mindsets that she believed operate. Now, you can use all sorts of models for these things, but this seemed to work well. So the the two mindsets are a fixed mindset and a growth mindset. And the basic main conclusion was that those underwriters who have more of a growth mindset or more of those characteristics are more successful. So... What's a fixed mindset? Well, often it's um, it's sometimes described as a kind of technical mindset, I suppose. One where I think the, the underwriters in this one, and this, these are just characteristics. They're not, you know, they're not always, mm, yes. you know, 100% in one individual. They're just a continuum. But those with more of these characteristics, these fixed characteristics, are the sort of people who I suppose are more concerned about their own kind of reputation winning and losing and so on you know you might even say passing exams and things like that are what are the things that sort of define them you know they have to have these kind of things but therefore they're quite tight they're quite reluctant to sort of believe that you can you know it's all they believe that it's all just about your innate sort of talent if you like and your innate and um, brilliance iq probably would be high on their list of priorities where 
this other group of more gross mindset people are much less concerned with all that. They're much more kind of more relaxed about and more curious about the world. So they get out, they meet people, they have much more, much more sort of outgoing characteristics. And they're all really, I suppose, in the end, characteristics that relate very well to salesy business development kind of characteristics. Often softer things, I think, as well, that you sometimes hear, I think quite often hear, underwriting heads saying, well, I need my underwriters to be technically good. That's the first thing. What I think that really means is not that I want them to be totally technical the whole time. I think what it often means is I want them to not lose me lots of money by <laughs> choosing the wrong risks, you know. Yeah. And that's very different from saying, but actually I want underwriters who can go and find the best risks, who can go and collaborate, work with the brokers and so on. So some of the characteristics, if you like, of this fixed mindset where they're quite derogatory towards brokers, they see it as a bit of a war, a battle between them and the broker. The broker's always trying to get one over on them. They're definitely not keen to go out and meet brokers. They they say the broker comes to my office and that's that. You know, So this really what perhaps sort of partially reflected the way Lloyd used to work, you know, this passive, you know, passing trade type of view, you know, you're lucky if you get it underwritten by me. Exactly. And I also was interested that you sort of describe it as that the fixed mindset people are, are those who have a good time. I suppose the, the bon viveurs, as you say, <laughs> the, the Lloyds of old rather than the Lloyds of 2020. Yeah, it's really good that one. I think it's always a bit counterintuitive because I think, you know, to, to find that actually these more kind of fixed people are a bit actually also say, well, you know, that's it. Five o'clock, it's down tools. And this isn't, you know, it's not all about hard work. You know what? Actually, it's all these more growth mindset people are the ones working after hours and making the calls and available on the mobiles. You know, it's just a different mindset. And I have to say that it it really resonated, I think, with everybody on the project. We all started to sort of think of people that we knew and and ever since we've all sort of walked into rooms going, you know, fixed or growth, you know, <laughs> look at people. Yeah. And the other thing I liked about it was because often with these things, you can have sort of slightly fluffy words, which is a little bit high minded. But there's that one on, for the fixed mindset, but for the growth mindset, which you've mentioned as well, was they travel to meet clients. Yeah. And that seemed to be a very, very concrete, very solid. Yeah example of, of what someone with growth mindset does that someone with a fixed mindset does not do it's a really good point peter a lot of the work that we've done in the advisory side is, ends up with you know one of the outputs is to get a behavior code off and, and what do we do and not do to deliver on this plan and i think this really reflected some of those behavior codes which is one of those that always came up was either we turn up at meetings on time prepared yeah or you know because we found in lots of organizations that were sort of a bit if you like a bit fixed and not bothered, they just kind of like, well, you know, I'm good. So don't expect me to turn up on time sort of thing. And that was terribly corrosive to what was, they were trying to do. So, so these are all things that resonated very clear. And that one about turning up on time, I have to say, I've heard that so many times, you know, if I, we do a lot of focus groups with brokers, almost every group, someone will say, Joe blogs is a really good person because if I'm in Chicago, and I say to them, the meetings at 8.30, Wednesday morning, they'll be there. No question they'll be there. And it's probably surprising to people outside of the insurance industry that if there's a business deal, people wouldn't be there. But I think historically, we've heard from a lot of brokers who say, well, you know, a lot of the time, the underwriters in the past have not been bothered to turn up. They've not deigned to be there. 
So this is um, something that's everywhere, but I think it's a maturing probably of the business into where we talked earlier on about transforming to the more outward looking business development types, you know, who, who, uh, yeah. who are not in great quantities, not a great supply of them, I'm afraid. No, they're rare. Well, they're rare in the legal world. They're rare everywhere. Those sort of the proper rainmakers, the people who stand head and shoulders. You do not use the words that I'm about to use. So I'm, I'm not putting words in your mouth here. But it feels to me, and I speak as an introvert, that it feels to me as though there's almost a, there are extrovert qualities which are being given the, the, the name growth mindset and introvert qualities which are being given the name fixed mindset. I repeat, that's not how you describe it. And we all know that there are introverts who would definitely fall within the growth mindset category and there'd be extroverts. In fact, the whole bon viveur feel who would fall within the fixed mindset. So although on one level it feels as though there's an extrovert-introvert divide, that's not, I presume, what your conclusion is. No, because there is elements of that. But then there are people who I think we all know who do what we might describe as introspective jobs. And I'm thinking of data science here and things like that. They may be quieter. They may be less, but they're no less curious. They're no less interested in the world. You know, when you meet them and talk to them, they take what they do in their job and they relate it to the context of what they're doing. And I think that's the most important thing here is that they don't just look at it as if they're passing an exam or ticking a box, if you like. They are saying, this doesn't just live here with this job. I'm going to relate this to, you know, what's happened in the US presidential election with climate change. With this, So there are interesting people in all these jobs, whether they be introverts or extroverts. And all of those people, essentially, their value to their businesses is, is they give you a different angle. And sorry, I'm picking out specific details, which are the ones that fascinated me, that there was one which talked about the fixed mindset people. They believe they are already experts. Now, is that sort of the Dunning-Kruger effect where people in the bottom quartile think they're in the top quartile? Or is it simply that more, that, that technical approach to underwriting whereby because they are an expert, they genuinely are an expert, but actually that they don't feel the need to expand and explore new areas. Yeah, I, it's a really good question. I think my, my I, mean, I think there's, I think first of all, there's more work needs to be done on that, but it's not purely about people who are technical and not technical. So that's the first thing is that lots of the growth mindset do have technical capability. They don't define themselves by that though. And I think we all know those sorts of people. They're always described as you know, they're so good with clients. They're really convivial people, but they know their stuff. Yeah, yeah. They don't put it out up front. And I think that's probably the most obvious difference that you see when you look at people and you observe them operating in organizations. And I think that what's more interesting, I think, is, you know, when you've got this kind of fixed mindset, do you, do you solve it? Or do you basically say, well, let's not hire people like that in future, which is probably where I would be. <laughs> because... I think it's about the here and now and the performance. And some of it, I'm afraid, I think there's a lot of work we've done around how people self-assess, you know, and that, that people are generally very poor, all research shows at self-assessing, you know, men in particular think they're all good drivers, you know, and of course they're not all good drivers. No, that's right. It's about 80% of people think that they are above average drivers, isn't it? Something like that. Yeah. And, and in all sorts of walks of life, you know, we've been told we're above average and we're not. So we, we start to believe this thing when we come to self-assessment and we miss the objectivity, which goes back to the very start of this conversation and why I think research is important. So I think that where 
this type of research helps is it's giving people tools, I think, in management, basically, to try and work out objectively what sort of people they have and what sort of talent they've got against, as you said earlier on, some quite recognizable characteristics. Now, these are all kind of measured, you know, it wasn't explicit because we were really looking at this and to see what fell out and then saying, is it worth anything? Mm. But I think when you look at it now, you can say, oh, actually, some of these are very actionable things that you can measure within organizations. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, they're behaviors that you can you can see. And also, I think that we all intuitively know and they help us explain why people are good a bit more, you know, rather than just going, I just don't know how they do that. <laughs> I just don't know how they sell so much. You know. Yeah. So bearing that in mind, what do you think the underwriter of the future is going to look like? And what, what are their skill set going to be? I've got two very clear answers to this or two parts of it i think the first is that you're going to have a much greater focus on business development underwriters who innovate and look at new products and services but they are people who collaborate down that value chain they're already there i mean some of these people are already there and i'll tell you where they exist they will be people who brokers will say this underwriter is absolutely fantastic and get this job done for me wherever it is in the world and get the deal done and help me to do it so the senior broker and the senior underwriters really understand one another and they know how to make money and they know which risks to choose and how to get them over the line. They exist, but that collaboration is more of a rarity than it is a commonplace thing. So that's one area. So those business development capabilities, I think, will ramp up hugely over the next few years, simply because technology is coming in and taking all the administrative. So in a way, all of that fixed mindset stuff will not be very valuable or useful to organizations anymore. Simple administrators holding the line is not going to be the job. The other area I think that is going to be extremely important, and um, it really plays to your introvert extrovert thing, is the data scientist types, the data people behind this. And that is technical, but it's it isn't just about, you know, knowing the numbers, being numerate, all that sort of stuff, or statistical brilliance. I think it's about those people who have both that skill set and know where to get it or know which software to use, but also to be able to interpret that in the context of business development. And I think that's something that gives me great kind of hope because it's where I came from and what I do, really. It's just that you take data and you don't believe that it's truth. You say it's a help, it's a tool to help us all to improve. It's not an absolute. So I think it's, it's all back to people, which is, a, I hope, a hopeful thing in the period of COVID, which is in the end, it's about the conversations and the discussions and the what do you do with it, than about the absolutes of the numbers on the spreadsheet, if you like. And, and do you see these changes as a case of evolution within the insurance world or, or revolution? Is what we're going to see in five, 10 years time just going to be a slightly different variation on what we see now, or we saw five years ago, or, or is it actually going to transform? And to what extent, I suppose, is what we've been through with COVID-19, how's that going to affect this, this transition phase as well? You sent this question through to me before, Peter, and I've thought about this a lot. I think it's a really good question. Evolution, I'd say it's, it's mainly evolution, but it's verging on revolution. And the reason is, I think that the pace of change in insurance is so fast and there are so many things happening at the same time. I think the talent change also, I mean, particularly if we look at London, I think there's going to be a huge churn of this kind of more ageing group of people, both in broking and underwriting. I don't think we want, you know, I don't think we're necessarily going to lose experience, but I think COVID will probably mean 
that more people are taking a, a slightly earlier retirement, if you like, than they perhaps would have done. And we're starting to see that in our data when we just look at our databases. So the other thing I think is just the evolution of trading, which I talked about. I think that will really push very quickly. I mean, you look at some of the software and some of the things that you can do once you have a trading platform working well within your business and you're auto-quoting and everything else. I mean, the first thing you say is I don't need as many underwriters, you know, kind of standard underwriters, if you like, if they exist in my business. What I need is some kind of super salespeople who can really use this and drive us forward and help us grow in new areas and new business. So I think that will be hugely evolutionary. Interestingly, what I've talked about, I've been talking about in the last couple of weeks with some clients is about the change in language. You know, a lot of the descriptors of the um, classes of business, you know, that both law firms and insurers all use, and we all use them, they're becoming a little bit antiquated and a bit, they're not really fit for purpose when you're talking to clients about cyber. I mean, I'll give you a good example, you know, political risk, war, terrorism, all that sort of class of business, you know, I mean, those are defined in the Lloyd's lines as, you know, but actually now brokers and clients are starting to talk about crisis management. And then they say, well, cyber fits in crisis management. So once you see the language starting to evolve, you realize this is going to be much more about solutions, if you like, for the customers, as opposed to I've just been able to write a bit of a profitable line follow on some credit risk or something, you know. Yeah, yeah. And of course, the other side of it is the diversity and inclusion. And as the market changes, increases its diversity and is far more inclusive, then that will itself drive change, won't it? Because different people will hit the top and different decisions will be made. Yeah, one of the things I think people would probably say insurance has been short of is ideas. And there's a great amount now of text, economic text, basically, new economic literature, which is all about the economic value of ideas, and particularly in an age of technology, and particularly we're all sitting at home, I guess. So I think that it's the ideas that are going to create value in the business. So what are the next products? I mean, clearly, we don't want to go into it now, but pandemic ideas. And, you know, I saw actually the Bruce Carnegie Brown was on a brilliant little podcast out of the US. I've forgotten the name. of it. Anyway, it's a famous one. We'll look it up after. But he's talking about the insurance products of the future. You know, they don't just have to be about pandemic. Why don't we get products that could work for all sorts of eventualities? And why can't we move away, say, he wasn't saying this, but I'm saying this. Why do we still have an indemnity product for all small businesses when you could really have a kind of cash flow type product, for example? And that might have solved a lot of the issues we've had with BI. So I think all of this is in the mix at the moment. And I think it's those ideas and people are thinking. I talk about markets that are thinking and not thinking. When I started in 2000, I think there were only a few people thinking and they were the characters I mentioned early on. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. So I'd include Robert Hiscox in that as well, I have to say. But I, now I think a lot more people are thinking and a lot younger people coming into the market, you know, in great droves from, from all sorts of different directions as well through insure tech, through, I think, as you say, diversity and inclusion programs. And I think that is fantastic because it's a huge business, you know, and it's been very static and institutionalised for probably too long. All of this has been wonderful. And the question which I always ask at the end is, what bit of advice would you give to a young person thinking of entering the insurance market? And I'm particularly interested in in what your answer is going to be because of the overview that you have of insurance and, and your much wider perspective on it. So what bit of advice would you give someone entering insurance at the moment? So I've got a brief answer, but I start answering this, but I, I recall an interview I did about 10 years ago with a senior broker. And he said, Ben, and it was a bit of a depressing interview at the time because the market was down and it was a bit dire and 
and so on. But he said, I have to say, Ben, that I've just advised my two older kids not to go into insurance. And it pains me because my father was in it and I've loved lots of parts of it. And I, I came away from that interview feeling quite depressed, actually, and thought, hmm, maybe I should go and do some research in some other market because it all feels a bit bleak. Today, I'd feel completely different. And if that young person came in now, I'd say, first of all, don't believe the stories about insurance being boring. It isn't. And this is a moment, as we've described, of change and opportunity. So I'd say go for it, but choose the right organisation that's progressive, innovative, customer focused, all the kind of softer stuff that we all want to talk about, but we think insurance isn't really about when it comes down to it. And you know, then I think if you work hard and particularly network hard within the industry, which is still there and still really important, you'll have a hugely enjoyable, exciting and successful career. I think it's a great place to work at the moment. Ben, that was wonderful. That was really fascinating. And so thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you, Peter. I've enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening to Insurance Covered. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and please rate, review and share it. It really does help. Please also listen to another of our podcasts, Taxing Matters, which is hosted by my brilliant colleague, Alice Kemp. Insurance Covered is an RPC production made possible by Joe Burgess and Mary Mitchell. If you want to be a guest on Insurance Covered, please email me at peter.mansfield at rpc.co.uk. Thank you and I hope you have a lovely day.